So, Father, um, we ask that you would help us to preach. Lord, I pray for those that are new, that this morning when things are confusing, they just hang in there and realize that it'll make some sense at some point. For those that have been here, Lord, for every sermon through the Revelation, I pray that you'd help them to connect the dots and not to think to themselves, oh, I heard this before, but to see you in maybe a new way. Lord God, uh, the picture that unfolds in Scripture of who you are is utterly stunning to me and overwhelming to me. And sometimes I just despair that there's no possible way I could even talk about it, and I guess that's the truth. But Holy Spirit, you know how to talk about it. You reveal the Father and you reveal the Son. And so would you do that this morning as we preach? In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, one particular day, I must have been maybe seven, so it was along around 1967, 1968, my friend Tim found something amazing in a field. He took me into his room and he pulled it out from under his bed. I gazed in absolute wonder at this treasure. I, I saw things I'd never seen before. It was a Playboy magazine. That night at dinner, once I got home, that night at dinner, I just couldn't sit still. I longed to run and hide. I was being tormented. The torment came from my father's presence. Not because he was bad, but because he was good. And not because he taught me that looking at, or he taught me that naked ladies were bad. It's not that naked ladies were bad. Actually, he taught me that they were more than, than just good. They were holy. Even at the age of seven, I knew that the problem wasn't with naked ladies, but how I had taken knowledge of them in Tim's room. My dad rarely spanked, but he would speak and the word would burn. <laughs> I remember there were times when I just wanted to yell, Dad, hit me or ground me, but stop talking. No more words. Well, that night I wanted to run and hide, for his presence was torment to my soul. And yet I didn't want to hide, for the outer darkness was even worse. And so I finally just cracked. I said, Dad, I, I got to talk to you. We went up to my room, sat next to each other on my bed. Actually, I remember lying on my back, pressing my feet against the, the bunk bed uh, above me, and through tears, I just spilled my soul. When I finished my confession, I did not hear one word of condemnation. I think he kissed me. He would always kiss me, and then he looked me in the face, and with the voice of deepest compassion, I remember he said this, Peter, are you going to be okay? <laughs> and then he said, and then he said, because he always said this, I love you, and I'm proud of you, and he left the room. <laughs> My dad died about 14 years ago. And you know what felt like the worst torment for about an hour one night long around 1967 has now become and actually always was my deepest desire 
And that is just to be with my dad, my Abba, my father. I was the apple of his eye. I discovered who I am by looking at the image reflected in the pupils of his, his eyes. I can't say that I never looked at another Playboy magazine. But I have enjoyed a wonderfully passionate marriage for 35 years, largely because of that night. I have thoroughly enjoyed Holy Communion in the sacrament of my covenant of marriage. And, and like my dad, I became a pastor. Not because I thought I should, but more like I just realized this is who I am. Now I had all sorts of other motives that God would have to burn away in time, but somewhere in the depths of my being, I just identified with my dad. I am his beloved. I had a good dad. And you have a good dad. Actually, the very, very, very best dad, even though a snaky dragon has been misleading you about that now for quite some time. Romans chap or Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, John writes, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed. To whom judgment was committed. And now you see that's pretty weird because it's John who records Jesus saying, The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. That means that these people are Jesus. Or at least his, his body or something. I saw the souls, also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word uh, of God. Jesus is the word of our testimony. And those who had not worshipped the beast, Sarah's image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Literally, they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, now, now think about that. The rest of the dead, that means the living were dead, but, but now they're, they're alive. The rest of the dead did not come to life until, so that's weird too, because that means uh, they also come to life. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, finished, teleo. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. It's like they have eternal life, and that means that for them, death has, has died. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And whenever the thousand years are finished, teleo, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, the peoples that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, we already read about this at the end of the sixth seal, sixth trumpet and sixth bowl. Remember, at the seventh seal, seventh trumpet and seventh bowl, we heard a voice cry from the throne, it is finished, chapter 16, verse 7. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, eleven fifteen. And the sky rolled up like a scroll, chapter 6, verse 14. You see, for John... The end invaded space and time and conquered all things the moment Jesus cried, it is finished, on the tree, in the garden, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. 
It was then that the blood began to flow and the life in the blood began to burn all that opposed the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain, uh, the broad plain of the earth, all these people at, at war with the Lamb, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, or fire and theon from, from theos, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night for ages and ages, eons and eons. That's what we preached on last time. So questions, you can find it online. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, uh, from his presence, literally his face, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books, plural, were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I went to seminary in the 1980s, and at that time, everything was about church growth. Traditionally, a good Protestant Reformed worship service always in includes, uh, it always included the proclamation of the word. That's what the sermon was called. The confession of sins and the assurance of pardon. That was, that was worship. By the 1980s, the sermon was more like a, a sales pitch followed by a call to make a decision and a commitment, what scripture would call a covenant. So a modern preacher didn't proclaim the eternal covenant of God, which is God's judgment and his word. A modern preacher made a pitch, asked people to judge the word, and then make a covenant. So anyway, a modern preacher would preach the judgment of the great white throne by saying something like this. Wouldn't you like to live and reign with Christ for a thousand years? And wouldn't you hate to be endlessly tormented by eternal fire? And so choose Jesus, choose Jesus. And give to the budget or whatever you, you, know, you happen to be promoting. Choose Jesus so God doesn't judge you and cast you into hell. That's an effective shtick for building institutions. But it's not so good at helping people fall in love with God. And even more, it's just incredibly terrible exegesis of our text. Here's the problems. For one, the great white throne judgment is not a threat of endless death in hell. The great white throne judgment is the end of hell and the death of death. We just read, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. In just five more verses, the voice from the throne will say, death will be no more. Hell cannot be a place of endless death if death and Hades come to an end in the lake of fire. 
Hades is the Greek word most often translated hell in English New Testaments. Ten times it's translated as hell in the King James, and once it's the grave. It's the realm of the dead, just like Sheol, the Hebrew word, in the Old Testament. Gehenna is the other word often translated hell. In English New Testaments, uh, in the King James, it's translated as hell nine times and hell fire three times. Gehenna was the valley that surrounded Jerusalem on two sides. To enter the city from the outer darkness, you often passed through Gehenna. Gehenna was also called Tophet, which means place of fire or burning place. And according to Isaiah, it was the breath of God that set it ablaze. The breath of Yahweh, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it, writes Isaiah chapter 30, verse 33. Breath of God. Wasn't it the breath of God? Breathed into a mound of clay that, that made you? And doesn't the word of God ride on the breath of God? The word of God is the judgment of God. God is one. God is love. And God is a consuming fire. We're talking about the lake of fire and Theon, or fire that is Theon. Theon comes from Theos, theology, God. Theon comes from theos and means brimstone or divinity. So it can be translated sulfur or divinity, and you look at the word of ed the etymology of sulfur, and it comes from, from that idea that, it, that it's like breath of God that sets things uh, ablaze. The lake of fire is the death of death. It swallows up death forever. And that, my friends, can only be God. Isaiah 25, verse 6, listen closely. On this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord of, surrounded by Gehenna, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast and destroy the veil that covers all people. And he, God, will swallow up death forever. The lake of fire that is divinity is the death of death, who is eternal life. In the end, death is swallowed by life, and death is no more. Temporality is swallowed by eternity, and all things become new. Outer darkness comes to an end in, in, in this lake that is light. The end is a lake of light. Lostness comes to an end in the lake of foundness. That is the way. Lies come to an end in the lake of truth, the truth. Death comes to an end in a lake of light, way, truth, and life. And the life is in the blood that was shed on the tree in the garden at the end of the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, sixth hour of the day. It was then that eternity invaded time, and it's there that all things are made new. It's the judgment of God. I am not comes to an end in a lake of burning I am. Well, anyway, that's one problem with the way that we've preached the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is not the beginning of some endless hell. The great white throne judgment is the end of temporal hell and the presence of eternal way, truth, life, and light. Another problem with the way that we've, we've preached this is that although this is the final judgment, it's already happened, is happening, and will happen. For John, there's only one judgment. 
John 3. This is the judgment, the judgment, singular. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. John 12, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. New Testament refers to Christ's sacrifice uh, on the tree as the end of the ions, the end of the ages, the, the, the end. That would be the last, the eschatos, the last judgment. Revelation 21, 22, Jesus says, I am the end. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Paul refers to his mere appearing, the appearing of Jesus as the judgment. Second Thessalonians, he calls it the epiphany of his appearing, or the epiphanao of his parousia, that is the manifestation of his parousia. Parousia is the Greek word often translated coming. Scholars like Karl Barth argue that it means something like this, effective presence. You might remember that when Jesus appeared, Epiphany, to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, and when he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, when he appeared to John at the very start of this vision, and when he uh, appeared as the rider on the white horse, he appeared as a man filled with fire whose face shone, his, his face, his presence shone as the sun. That's effective presence. His parousia, his glorious appearing, and it's all the judgment. So maybe we should stop thinking chronologically and start thinking theologically. That is logically, that is according to the logos, the word. And maybe space and time are relative. And the word is not. Maybe all things are relative to the word, who is the light, who is the judgment. And like the angel told us in chapter 10, chronos will be no more. Well, anyway, there are some problems with the way we've been reading Revelation 20. Number one, it's not the beginning of hell, but the end of hell. Number two, it's not just final judgment, but every judgment. It's the judgment. And number three, it's not the judgment of the living and the dead. Just the dead. Check it out. It's not the living that stand before the throne in verse 12. It's the dead. <coughs> In other words, it's like a pack of zombies. Churches often have this confession. We believe in the judgment of the living and the dead. You've heard that, right? You've probably said that. We believe in the judgment of the living and the dead. But this is just the dead. Actually, in John, maybe all the New Testament, everyone is dead. Until they've been judged by the living the living one, the life. You can even find them in the last and the least of these. And then once they live, they're no longer judged. The living aren't judged. They've been judged. Listen to Jesus in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, that means pay attention to this. Whoever believes has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You know, actually, Jesus describes all of Revelation 20 in John chapter 5. So you should read it when you, when you get home tonight. Well, anyway, there are some problems with the way we've been reading. And perhaps the solution is simply to believe the word. And yet, that does raise this fascinating question. Who are the dead? <laughs> and who, when, and where are the living? 
Well, we just read about the living in the last paragraph. They live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, we say, so when and where is that thousand years? Well, remember what we have been preaching about all along. The seven-sealed scroll in the right hand of God reminded us of all the ages of space and time, the cosmos. He's got the whole cosmos in his hands. He's got the whole space and time in his hands. It reminded us of the entire cosmos, for in Genesis, the entire cosmos is created in seven days. And on the seventh day, everything is very, very good, and it is finished, and God Rest. Well, because Genesis is written this way, and because all is not yet good, and because man does not yet appear to be finished, entirely finished in the image of God, and because with God a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, not is a day, but as a day, well, many Jews thought and still think that the creation is not yet finished, but will be finished when the Messiah comes. 6,000 years from the moment of creation and inaugurates his messianic kingdom on earth. Using this formula, they calculate that he must come by nightfall on the 16th of September, 2240. You might put that on your calendar. Well, Christians believe that he's already come. And many in John's day believed that the Messianic kingdom began when Jesus cried, it is finished. In the garden, on the tree, on the mountain, next to Jerusalem, at the end of the sixth day. At the cross, God's promised rest invaded space and time. Or you could say that the Lord of the Sabbath was revealed in space and time. So the biblical view of time is something like this. God creates all things in six days, six yoms, ions, or ages, and on the seventh day, it is finished. And everything is good. The seventh day is God's promised rest, God's Sabbath. And the seventh day is a different kind of day in Scripture. It's like e eternal, it's ionios, it's, it's God's age, and you see, God, I am that I am, is not bound by space and time. He made space and time. God is the beginning and the end, and he does not change. That's eternal. Jesus is also the beginning and the end, and he does not change, according to Scripture. He's eternal, and like he said, the kingdom is at hand. So God is always present even though we are usually entirely unaware of his presence. But through his death and resurrection, his glory is revealed in space and time, and we see that God is love, and love conquers all, even me. Well, this is why we work six days, and on the seventh day we rest, to remember eternity to remember creation, to remember our God. Once a year at the end of the Feast of Ingathering or Tabernacles, the Jews were also commanded to celebrate an eighth day as a symbol of like an endless seventh day, an eternal Sabbath called the Shemini Adserat. I don't know if I said that right, but they were, you can read about it in the Pentateuch. Jesus was crucified at the end of the sixth day and he rose on the eighth day.
So when and where are the living? Well, maybe they're right here, right now. I mean, maybe that's us. That's what we preached on last time. I think this is the millennium, and we are the body of Christ rising in space and time, the eternal rising in temporality. So, so who, when, and where are the living? Well, you know, I think we saw them following Jesus in, in chapter 19. Remember, they followed him dressed as him on white horses, and they conquered all things. We read that the lamb conquers and those with him. They conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. We read at the start that the one who conquers will eat from the tree of life, not be hurt by the second death, have his name written in the book of life, and sit on the throne of God with God and rule over the nations. The one who conquers, the one who conquers. First John, John writes this, everyone born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that conquers the cosmos, our faith. Jesus said all things are possible to him who believes, to him who has faith. He's the lion. He is the lion who looks like a lamb and conquers all things. One could argue that the most influential person of the 17th century wasn't a king or a pope, but a peasant named Lawrence. As a young man, God seemed to speak to him one day as he meditated on a tree and thought about how death comes to life like a tree in, in the spring. He joined a monastery and served as a cook and also a fixer of sandals until he died in relative obscurity at the age of 80 years old. Because he was known for such kindness and this absolute relentless joy, Lawrence was interviewed by the servant of a French cardinal, the, the servant named Abbe de Beaufort. Those interviews, along with a few, a few notes found upon Lawrence after he died, well, they were preserved in this little book called The, the Practice of the Presence of God. And that's all it is, just a few thoughts on practicing the constant awareness of the presence of God. And, and yet, it's been read by millions and millions and millions. And Larry changed the world. Brother Lawrence writes this, all things are possible to him who believes, still more to him who hopes, still more to him who loves, and most of all to him who does all three. Faith, hope, and love are eternal. That means you cannot make them, they make you. The new and eternal you. They're not your choice. They're God's choice rising within you. So who are the living? Well, in Revelation 20, they are those that have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life. You see, that's not their choice. That's the Lamb's choice. That's the judgment of God. And who are the dead? Well, in Revelation 20, they are those who are judged according to the things written in the books, according uh, to, to what they've done. And you see, what they've done is their choice. It's their judgment. On the sixth day of creation, the snake tempted each of us to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to make ourselves 
in the image of God. The knowledge of good and evil is called the law. And the energy with which we take it and try to fashion ourselves into the image of God is called the flesh. So in the words of Paul, the enemy tempted each of us to justify ourselves by works of the law in the power of our own flesh. I hope you noticed in Revelation 20 that the dead, great and small, the dead, great and small, are judged by their deeds, and none of them are justified by their deeds. Indeed, all of them are already dead. It's like they died the day that they took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil from that tree. So now even their good deeds are like filthy rags. A man must fail miserably, wrote George MacDonald, or succeed even more miserably. Love that quote. We'll talk about this more next week, but when we try to justify ourselves, we don't create ourselves. We desecrate ourselves uncreate ourselves. We turn into beasts that consume life, trying to make ourselves alive. We turn into harlots that use love and in the process crucify love. We become the antichrist, which means imitation Christ. We put our faith in me as salvation and we crucify God as salvation, Jesus. We exalt ourselves and Jesus calls that the abomination of desecration. Believing the lie of the devil, we crucify Christ and put our flesh on the devil. As Jesus said to the Pharisees who tried to justify themselves before men, you are of your father, the devil. The day you eat of it, you will die. Scripture says that they crucified Jesus because they were jealous of Jesus. That means they wanted to be Jesus who is the perfect image of the invisible God. And yet this is God's judgment. Let us make them in our own image. And yet this is the evil one's lie. You should make yourself in God's image. The dead try to make themselves in the image, and that's why they're judged by the deeds in the book. They want to be judged by their deeds recorded in the books. They want to be judged by their resumes. In other words, they think that they are their own ego. The day you eat of it, you will die. That was not a sin. That was sin. All sin. And so the moment we took knowledge of the good from the tree, the life died, and we died, and all our subsequent good deeds turned into, well, they always were just an illusion. God said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me I will blot out of my book. And yet even as he said it, he was teaching Moses about a slaughtered lamb. The lion is a lamb, and he has a book, and he writes names in that book with his blood. He gives his life to whom he chooses, and that's why we believe. And that's how we are finished in the image of God and likeness of God. To, to take knowledge of the good from the tree is to justify yourself. To receive knowledge of the good from the tree is to be justified by body broken and bloodshed, a gift 
The dead try to make themselves in the image of God, who is the good, and the living believe that they are the image of God because the Lamb of God has written their names in his book. And that's the good. He is the good, and he is the life. Yahweh is salvation. Yahashua, Jesus. So anyway, anyway. Uh, the dead get thrown in the lake of eternal fire, and the living rule and reign with Christ, who is God. And so, of course, we want to know, which one am I? Am I one of the dead? Or am I one of the living? Well, hopefully, by now you see, I think you're both. It's what we've been preaching. There is a, a me that I think I make and there is a me that God has made, that I am has made. Remember this, we each have a spirit that is the breath of God, and God is eternal. That spirit is who I am. I am eternal, and I observe me in space and time. We each have a self that we think we have created in time with our choices. It's our psyche in a body of flesh. It's the me that I think I made. But there's a me that I am has made. The me that I think I create is who I am not. It's a, it's a passing illusion. And the me that God has created is who I am. I think it may be eternal. <laughs> it's the body of Christ. The me that I create is pride, shame, and fear. The me that God has created is faith, hope, and love. The me that I create is my judgments, disobedience, darkness, lies, and, and death. It's temporal and hollow. It's empty, empty space and time. The me that God creates is his judgment, mercy, light, truth, and life. It's the fullness of all my space and time. So in the words of St. Paul, you have an old Adam, an old body of death that can do nothing but sin. Why? Because it's the spawn of the devil. And you have a new Adam who is eternal, indestructible, cannot die, and is actually incapable of sin because he is entirely free. He is an absolutely free will. First John 3, John writes this, whoever sins is of the devil. <laughs> For this purpose the Son of God appeared, manifested, to destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For he cannot sin. See, you have a self that is dead and can do nothing but sin. And you have a self that is alive and is incapable of sin. He who loves is born of God and knows God, writes John. He who does not love does not know God. <laughs> I bet you love at times and don't love at other times. You see, when you love, it's God in you that's doing the loving. God is love. And when you don't love, well, that's just the old you, the, the spawn of the devil. In John chapter, chapter 10, to a group of Jews, get this, who were about to stone him, 
whom he previously seems to have referred to like two chapters before as the spawn of the devil, Jesus says this, is it not written in your law, the Bible, the Psalms, you are gods? See, Jesus acted as if eternity was buried deep in even the worst of hearts. He acted as if every dirty field contained buried treasure, and so he would pay just any price for that field. He spoke as if each of us were a field containing wheat and tares, or wheat and weeds, as if each of us were grain and chaff, each of us were sheep and goats, each of us were spirit and flesh, but here's the rub. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh cannot just decide to become spirit. A goat cannot just decide to become a sheep. Chaff cannot just decide to become grain. Weeds cannot just decide to become wheat. A heart of stone can't just decide to become a heart of beating living flesh. A will cannot just will a new will. Evil cannot decide to be good. Nothing, or nothingness, nothing cannot decide to be something, and the dead cannot decide to live. So we read about the judgment, and we all start to panic. We all start asking, how can I change? Preacher, give me some of that knowledge of the good so I can choose to be good and make myself good and save my soul. How can I change me? Listen to the judgment of God. You can't. I mean, you must lose your psyche, your me, in order to find it. What I mean is, you must die and be born again. Now that is a terrifying judgment, and then you've discovered that it's just profoundly good news. For you see, my biggest problem, actually, when you think about it, all of my problems, my biggest problem, all of my problems is, is me. More specifically, it's that I cannot change me. All my anxiety, fear, shame, stress is due to the fact that I can't seem to change me. <laughs> At least not for the better. Maybe for the worse, but not, not for the better. But if what I'm saying is true, there is no me to change. There's an old me that only sins and can't be fixed, for it's already condemned. For in fact, it's actually nothing but illusion. And there is a new me that can do nothing but good and so will never needs to be fixed. It's actually Christ who is the good in me who is eternal and indestructible. So there is a temporal me that's not me and an eternal me that is who I am. In other words, there is a me that cannot be justified and there is a me that is eternally justified because he is the just, he is the right, he is the truth. There's a me that cannot be justified and there's a me that is eternally justified, but there is no me to justify. There is no me to worry about. There is no me to defend. There is no me to promote. There is no me to hide. There is no me that needs to change. You see, God is not a God of second chances. 
We need to get rid of that phrase. God is God, not a God of second chances. God, God is the creator of new creations. You don't need a second chance. You need a new heart. That's what the prophet said. That's what like, the whole testament was about. You need a new me. There is no me to change, but there is a me to lose. And there is an utterly fascinating me to be discovered. You see, every good decision in me is a revelation of who I truly am. Unless, of course, I think that I created those good decisions in me, and then those good decisions in me define who I am not. Why? Because I've killed them. I've killed them and created my ego. That is my sin. So do I need to worry about that? No, no, you don't need to worry about because listen to what Paul writes. Consider yourself dead to sin. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You can't fix the old man. You just need to observe that he's already dead. He's nothing, he's dead. That sounds like a horrifying judgment, but you see, it is the best possible news. For months now, I've been fascinated by something from the practice of the presence of God. Abba de Beaufort, who interviewed Brother Lawrence, writes this at the start of the book. Brother Lawrence was aware of his sins and was not at all surprised by them. That is my nature, he would say. The only thing I know how to do. He simply confessed his sins to God without pleading, without pleading with him or making excuses. After this, he was able to peacefully resume his regular activity of love and adoration. If Brother Lawrence didn't sin, he thanked God for it because only God's grace could keep him from sinning. St. Paul wrote, rejoice always, don't worry, and thank God for all things, Philippians 4.4. And so I've tried to do that for years. I've tried to thank God for everything, but I still worry. And I do not rejoice always. I've tried to thank God for everything, but this week I realized, you know, I really haven't thanked him for me. And instead I have constantly worried about me. Do you know that it's impossible to thank God for the old me? For the old me is the me that I thought I made. <laughs> so there's no one to thank, it's my ego. But the new me is the me that I did not make, the me, the me that loves because it knows that it is constantly loved because God is love. I can't make love, I can't create love, love creates me by living his life in me. I, I can't create the real me, only discover uh, the me that has been created. The me that has been created and buried in a field, a dirty field like treasure, or that is rising uh, from a tomb like eternal life. It's impossible to thank God for the old me. For the moment I genuinely thank God for the old me, I discover the new me in its place. In the very place that we were called not his people, there we will be called children of the living God. In the very place the old Jerusalem is destroyed, we're about to see the new Jerusalem come down. 
It's where sin increased that grace abounded all the more. It's from the tomb of the old self that the new self is born. I had a friend that used to make these beautiful bronze statues, works of art. You'll see them like in Evergreen and, and Breckenridge places like that. He told me about how he did it. First, he'd fashion a figure out of wax, and then he'd encase that figure in clay, and then he'd fire the clay, which would harden the clay and melt the wax, leaving a void in this earthen vessel. And then he would pour molten bronze into the void. One day he said this to me, Peter, that process, that, that pour, it's, it's always a, a religious experience for me. I think it's how God makes me and you and all of his people. My sin is like the wax that forms a void, and the grace of God is the burning hot substance of God that melts the wax and fills the void. It's faith, hope, and love in me, and it's eternal. You know, Scripture teaches that the inner sanctuary in the temple was eternal and separated from the outer courts of the temple with a curtain. You are that temple, according to Jesus. I think the great and glorious surprise may be that I am is hidden behind the curtain in every individual and unique temple of human flesh, like breath in a ball of clay. And when we see Christ die, that curtain is ripped and love begins to fill our temple from the inside out like molten bronze that fills an earthen vessel. And so in this way, I discover that I am the body of Christ and the image of God. And, and with Christ, I begin to reign and rule from the throne in the temple of my own soul, an individual and unique temple constructed by means of individual and unique sins committed in space and time that have now been filled with the eternal substance of God, who is grace. When Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the weeds, he made it clear that we can't turn weeds into wheat, just as we can't turn wax into bronze. He also made it clear that we don't have the ability to separate one from the other, but we must wait for the judgment. There will be a judgment on the last day. But when we surrender to the ever-present presence of God, when we wait on God, we come to the judgment. The judgment of the last day, here and now. Judgment. We're not cast into the lake of fire, but the fire wells up from a spring in the midst of our souls and fills the temple of God with the Spirit of God. The fire destroys the old man. That's the glorious disappearing. And the fire reveals the new man, the one that was buried in the prison of the old man and the one that is revealed in the emptiness left by his passing. And so in this way, I discover who I truly am. That's a pretty glorious appearing. Uh, so we wonder sometimes. I preach and people say, Peter, what can I do? What do, what do I do? Well, uh, I wrote this down one day. I can watch me die. And I can watch me rise from the dead. 
I can lose my life and find it. I can observe my own creation, and I am made forever grateful. Okay, that's weird. So then, how is the old man destroyed, and how is the new man revealed? How do we live free of our anxiety, shame, fear, and, and despair? How do we enter God's rest, become who we truly are, and live in the perfect freedom of absolute and relentless love? Well, with whatever faith God has given you, even as a side of, of a, like a mustard seed, with whatever faith he's, he's given you, practice the presence of God. You sit on the side of the bed with your heavenly dad and confess your sins and receive his mercy. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the presence, the presence of God. Remember when he appears to John at the start of the Revelation, his eyes burn with fire, his face shines like the sun. He's covered in, in white, but then John says this. He sees his feet. They're burnished bronze, as if refined by fire in a furnace. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. Read it, and you discover that there was a moment on the cross in which Christ's body appeared to have been made of wax. And yet here it is burnished bronze, solid gold, eternal. You've been wax, but you will be solid gold. And maybe you already are and just didn't know it. Well, I hope you see that the lake of fire is the presence of God. I think it's also the fluid that Christ bleeds even here, even now. And so he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body. The book of Hebrews says that his body is that curtain in the temple. He said, this is my body given to you, take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do you understand? He is not asking you to make a covenant and try harder. He is the covenant, the eternal covenant, revealed in time that you might become just who it is that you truly are. Dark cup is wine. Light cup is juice. And I've seen this, so I'm not just saying this because of some Bible verse. I, th I think I've seen this. They're both fire. Amen. That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No! 
like the winds are changing. Ah, uh, change is good. Yeah, but it's not easy. I know what I have to do, but going back means I'll have to face my past. I've been running from it for so long. Ow! Jeez, what was that for? It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it or Learn from it. Ah! You see? So what are you going to do? First, I'm gonna take your stick. No, 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 no! Not a stick! Hey! Where are you going? I'm going back! Good! Go on! Get out of here! <laughs> So if you didn't understand the sermon, that's what I was saying. <laughs> I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he's the Lion of Judah. So this is Thanksgiving week, and maybe you could take some time to practice the presence of God. And, uh, oh, hey, I brought a copy of the book. But anyway, you can, you can get the presence of practice. You can download it for free. It's everywhere. So if you can read the book, that might help. But practicing the presence of God really is just being aware of God's presence wherever you are and whatever you're doing and then doing those things for him. But it's also important to take some time every now and then and just sit and, and look in your father's eyes. And you do that with the eyes of your heart. And when you're doing that, maybe this week, you could, you could do this. Just say, thank you, Father, for me. You, you see, when you, when you say that, that burns the old man. It burns your ego. It destroys him because you acknowledge that you yourself are a gift. It burns the old man and the new man appears who is the life of the Father in you. And then you begin to live gratefully. You begin to live worshipfully. You begin to live freely. And um, 
Well, that's the glorious appearing of Jesus in you. All I'm saying is uh, believe the gospel. <laughs> Amen.